Good morning, and welcome to Taproot. My name is Leslie, and I'm going to be reading the word for us today. When I finish reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. As a church, please prayerfully respond with, speak, Lord, your servants here. Our scripture today is taken from Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 34. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all of the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, be with us as we start this Advent season. Touch each individual heart in this room that they may go touch four or five other hearts with your spirit, why you want us to learn about this, and what we have to share, your joy, your birth, and our salvation. In your name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Leslie. Good morning, family. How are we? Good, good. Happy belated Thanksgiving. Everyone feeling okay after the weekend? And feel like there's a little bit of drowsiness going on and whatnot, but if you're a guest, uh, yeah, welcome to Taproot Church. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here in Taproot and get to open scripture this morning and preach. Uh, we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we decided this year... They're not going to stop and do a specific Advent series, uh, but instead we decided to just keep going through Matthew because if ever we are to finish the Gospel of Matthew, 
Uh, we're just going to have to keep going through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and I was looking back in our, my notes, and I think we started Matthew in 2019, uh, the end of 2019 for Christmas. And so we've done it already, uh, so we're not going to revisit it this year. But uh, yeah, we get to just continue through uh, taking some larger portions of Scripture. It was actually one of the things that hit me as I was studying this week is just uh, the transition from discourse to narrative. So uh, the Gospel of Matthew as a whole and, and all of the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, are narratives. That's kind of the genre of Scripture. But within those narratives, there's also discourse. And when we talk about discourse, we're talking specifically about just teaching. Uh, and if you want to understand more what discourse is in regards to biblical literature, just think Paul's letters. Uh, have, have any of you noticed that you like to read, if you read the Bible, you like to read Paul's letters uh, a little bit more than anything else? Uh, it's because they tend to translate easier. They're, they tend to like specifically teach us things, and it kind of just feels easier to grasp. That's discourse, and that was the Sermon on the Mount. It was discourse. It was kind of easier to grasp, but we've transitioned once again into the, just this narrative story of the life of Jesus uh, as he calls his followers to himself and as he shows us how he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, Israel story. And so narrative is interesting because it doesn't lend itself to like an automatic or easy application, which is really challenging because then how many of us like application? Right? Most of us come and we're like, man, I sure hope there's something that I can get this morning to apply to my life. Uh, and you will. At the very least, it'll be like, wow, this Jesus guy's pretty amazing. And uh, how should I respond to him? And that's really the heart of what we are getting at here in the Gospel of Matthew. So, uh, yeah, with that, let's just let's get into it this morning. And I want to start with this. I believe, I believe that there are few more challenging words and ideas to us today than that of authority. Authority. Authority, in, in many ways, the word itself, the idea, it's kind of like a, kind of like a cuss word. Let's, like, let's, try to, let's try to avoid authority as much as we possibly can. Uh, as I was thinking through this this week, sorry to do this, but I'm going to reference a Disney movie, which feels weird. Um, but there's that scene from the classic, uh, The Lion King. And uh, Scar wants Mufasa dead, right? Uh, because Mufasa is in authority over the, the whole land, right? He's king. And there's that scene where the hyenas, they come to Scar, and they, they kind of do that little thing like, Mufasa. And what is Scar? His response is kind of like, he, like he, 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 he's like, ugh. He just kind of shrieks back, and he, he doesn't like the idea of, of not being in authority. And so he shudders at the idea that someone else is in authority over him. And we tend to, we may not come out and say it, but we tend to respond to authority in the same way. We like being in authority. We have a hard time when there's an authority over us. You don't have to raise your hands, but I know you all agree. <laughs> so here, here's just a couple of examples. Uh, <clears throat> work. Most of us are employees in some way, shape, or form, and so we have people who are in authority over us at work, or you're like, no, I don't like being under authority at work, so I'm going to start my own business. But in, in the work situation, I remember, I remember this from when I worked a normal job a long, long time ago. It was, it was interesting. There was, there was this, this tension of, of wanting to respect 
the boss, the person who was in authority. But the reason for respecting that person was primarily because he or she was the one who signed your paychecks. And so the motive was, was, was money. And it was, I, I need to make sure to not say the wrong things at the wrong time so that I'm not heard. But when that person, that boss, he or she is gone, I'm going to make sure to speak uh, against their authority behind their back. I remember every week we had these Monday morning meetings and our boss would come in and uh, he was usually unhappy in some way, shape, or form. He would go to his office, leave the meeting, and then just like the gossip ensued. And, but, it was, but it was an interesting thing because as long as he was there, there was no way anyone was going to challenge this person's authority. But as soon as he left, authority was out the window and we thought, no, we're all in charge. We are in authority. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just sitting in his office. We're out doing all of the real work. Make sense? Or think of this. Um, another place that we see this is just in our world, parents and children in the home. I, I think more and more we live in a world where uh, authority is confused. And more and more we have this idea that uh, children should be in charge for some reason as if they have all wisdom and knowledge as five-year-olds to know the right and wrong decisions to make for life. And so parents allow children to have all of this authority and let them do what they want and, and pretend that they're learning something, though they might not be. Another example is uh, just think of this, the offense of being called Mr. or Mrs. I think, I think this one is interesting. Because uh, I remember growing up, I'm, I'm old enough to remember growing up uh, and being able to call people Mr. or Mrs. and then their last name. Right? But you do that now, or you try to teach your kids, call so-and-so Mr. something, and the response is like, don't call me that, that's my dad. <laughs> or something like that, right? <laughs> or, or even in the world of like teachers, you know, it used to be Mr. and Mrs. last name, so-and-so, now it's now, we don't do that. It's, it's Mr. or Mrs. first name, which I guess is fine. The point that I'm making, though, is that we, we don't know how to, to work around these authority structures. We don't, we don't even know how to communicate them anymore. And, and it's hard to even be able to communicate or instruct my kids how to respect people who they should respect, because when they do, the response is met with, oh, don't call me that. It's like, oh, no, they're just trying to actually respect the authority that you might have in their, in their lives. One more example. The church world is, is interesting when it comes to authority. I, I think a lot of us don't quite know what to do with authority when it comes to life in the church because I think many of us have, have seen authority abused in the church. And so we kind of push against authority in the church. We don't want anyone in the church to be in authority over us. Jesus is in authority over me. No one else is. So we don't know how to, to work out authority structures in the church. But it was interesting, this last week I had an experience, uh, I got a text message, and it was, it was from a, a, a member of one of the refugee congregations, and their message to me, it just began with this, it was, Pastor Littleton, I respect and honor you. I was like, I laughed. I don't know what to do with that. And I, and I say this not to be, not to like, tell you all that that's how you should <laughs> address me. <laughs> it's not what I'm getting at at all. I'm completely fine with y'all calling me Mike. That's just fine and dandy. But see, again, it's another tension 
when it comes to authority. And it was really interesting just to kind of experience this person's uh, perspective because they, they, they texted me, they called me and, and left a voicemail. And, and there was just this level of, of respect of authority in, in both situations uh, because they, ex- they exist kind of in a different world that, that treats uh, authority figures differently. And it came out in the way that he had addressed me. I, just, I was kind of just blown away by it. And I think that's what we begin to get at here in our text this morning. There's, there's kind of a lot of directions I felt like we could go with, with this particular portion of Scripture. But I think what Matthew wants us to begin to see and understand is that Jesus is Lord. He's King. Jesus is the one who is rightfully in all authority over the universe. What we begin to see is that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. That, that Jesus is ruler of all. And that our response to Jesus, as we'll see, is not that he's, he's like our best bud or formerly like the homeboy idea of Jesus. Right? Like, like we don't approach Jesus and, and be like, oh, yo, Jesus, pound it. That's not how it works. Rather, Jesus is in authority, right? And as such, he's to be worshiped and bowed before. And so this is what Matthew begins to work out for us. And he does this by showing us how Jesus calms that which was formerly chaotic, And so what I want us to see in this sermon is how the authority of Jesus has a direct correlation in our discipleship to him. If, If we're to be the kind of disciples that Jesus actually calls us to be, then we have to understand who he is. We have, to, we have to understand his position of authority in our lives. Otherwise, we'll treat Jesus rather disrespectfully. We'll be, we'll be quick to disregard his words. We'll be quick to question his words. We'll be quick to debate with him. We'll be quick to try to kind of push his authority aside, which is not the life of a disciple. And so we have to have a, a correct understanding of Jesus' authority because it has a direct relationship to our discipleship to him. And this, and this is going to work itself out over several chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. So this is, this is just a theme that we're going to continue to see as we work through, as we work through Matthew. Okay. So in our text this morning, here's, here's the big idea. Building off of what we saw last week, Matthew shows us the authoritative nature of Jesus, and in doing so, he teaches not only the truth that Jesus should be the center of our lives, but also why. So he begins to show us not only that Jesus should be the center, just this this reality, but also the why behind it. And so we're going to work this out in two points this morning. Number one, we're going to look at Jesus' authority over his disciples, and then number two, we'll look at Jesus' authority over the chaos. So number one, Jesus' authority over his disciples. Let's read again there, uh, starting in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, 
I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now start with this. This this first paragraph here is painfully brief and incredibly short on the details. It's actually, it's really frustrating. It's like, man, Matthew, could you have given us just a little bit more in regards to what was going on here? But Matthew is intentional in the way that he recorded Jesus' life. He's intentional in the way that he constructed his gospel. And so there's a lot of space left for our imagination to work this out. Before we do that, we need to first recall what has gotten us to this point. So uh, remember, Jesus' public ministry began at his baptism back in Matthew chapter 4. And really, what we see is that his, his ministry has two parts to it. His public ministry has two parts to it. Number one is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. And number two, to bring healing and peace to a broken world. So look back there at, uh, at Matthew 4, uh, verse 17 and verse 23 is what communicates to this to us. So it says, from that time, uh, this was after his temptation, uh, it says this, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then just a few verses later down there, um, In verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus, is, his, his ministry begins with him going around the Sea of Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And in doing so, he's, he's building a following. And then it kind of leads us up to this moment where Jesus goes up on the mountain. Uh, we're supposed to have this picture of, of Moses going up on the mountain as well, yet Jesus being the better Moses, right? So he goes up on the mountain, he sits down, he teaches specifically his disciples, but we also have this backdrop of this massive crowd, Uh, that's come to listen to the teachings of Jesus. So there's obviously something unique about the teachings of Jesus, and and, and the Sermon on the Mount, of course, ended with this reality, that Jesus' teaching, the way that he communicated Scripture, was unique among the teachers of his day, because the tendency of rabbis, teachers, was to just kind of quote former rabbis, but Jesus didn't do this. Jesus himself, with his own authority, reestablished the authority, fulfilled, propped up the law of God, the scriptures. And so Jesus' authority rests in his teaching, but now he moves down into the valley among the people, which is one of the things that we want to continue to reiterate. We want to see this picture of Jesus teaching on the mountain, but then moving down into the valleys among the people. And that's the reality for us as the church. We are to be a people who are living down in the valleys among people, bringing the good news of Jesus. Now, as he's moved into into this valley, what we saw last week is that Jesus goes to the outsiders, And so Jesus, 
immediately after his teaching, he just begins to break down these barriers, these cultural barriers that were around him. And so Jesus, first and foremost, goes to the leper, right? The outsider who couldn't, couldn't, wasn't even allowed within the temple courts. Jesus goes to this man, touches him, heals him, tells him to go offer the sacrifice that he was supposed to. Boom, wall broken down. This man's allowed into, the, the, into worship of God. Uh, then he goes to a, a, a Gentile, a pagan, a centurion, uh, a Roman soldier, which was basically like the epitome of an enemy to the Jews. Right? And so he, he breaks down another wall. And then he, he goes to a woman. He goes to Simon Peter's mother-in-law again and breaks down this barrier. And so Jesus is, is breaking down these barriers that have been built for, for years and allows these people, uh, as you, not as you would expect, and certainly not as, as, as anyone expected the Messiah to do, but breaks down the walls, these barriers, and, and allows them to enter into worship of God, ultimately. And a result of this is that crowds continue to form around Jesus. Right? So this, this is what we see here in 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So this is Jesus' introverted side coming out now. Uh, but actually, it is, it is really interesting. Jesus tends to not be very fond of crowds. Uh, Matthew doesn't highlight this nearly as much as Mark, but regardless of where you see it in any of, uh, uh, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, wherever you see the crowds, uh, it's not necessarily re- representative of anything good. The crowds are kind of the people who, who show up. They're intrigued. Uh, They like the things that Jesus says for the most part, but then they're easily offended by Jesus as well. And at the end of the day, the crowds are the ones who are quickest to fall away. The crowds at the end of the day are the ones who who are the least committed, or so it seems. And so there's not necessarily a positive view of the crowds. They aren't representative of faithful followers of Jesus. And so Jesus is, is ready now to, to begin dealing specifically with his closest disciples. And so he's ready to take those disciples and to move on. And so he calls them to get into a boat to get ready to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then, and then what we have here is, is two disciples, at least we think they're disciples, come out of the crowds and come up to Jesus and kind of put a pause on it. Right? These, these disciples sort of delay him. Now, it's not perfectly clear who these guys are, uh, but what we see is this, is that one is overly confident, while the other is seemingly a little uncertain and hesitant. Uh, Bruner, Frederick Dale Bruner, commentator on Matthew that we've been using, he says that these two are kind of representations of how not to enter into discipleship. And whether that's exactly right or wrong, I don't know, but Jesus does indeed have something to show us here. And so let's just look at the disciples respectively. The first disciple uh, we see is a scribe or a teacher of the law. So look at verse 19. A scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now this this one's interesting because in the whole of Matthew chapter eight, this scribe, this teacher of the law is the only one to refer to Jesus as teacher, uh, which is important 
Because in Matthew's gospel, those who refer to Jesus as teacher are non-disciples. So what we see here is, is there's something that this scribe is not understanding about who Jesus is. It's actually interesting. There's, there's this, uh, I think in Matthew 8, there's this, this buildup where you see Jesus understood as, as Lord from the leper, and actually from just about everyone else except for the person who you would most expect. Right? The person who you would most expect to understand who Jesus is is the scribe. The, the one who knows scripture back and forth, inside and out. And yet he comes referring to him as teacher. Even, even Matthew 8 begins, right, with this interaction that Jesus has with, with demons. And how do the demons refer to Jesus? They're actually the only ones who call him son of God in the whole of Matthew chapter 8. So it's just interesting to see how, how people are responding to Jesus, how they're learning how to understand who Jesus is. Right? And it's good for us to see this progression. <clears throat> but what he does is he, he calls him teacher. And those who call Jesus teacher in Matthew's gospel are non-disciples. Now, there's debate as to whether this person actually was a disciple or not. Because as the text moves on and it moves on to the, the next disciple, the text says that there was another disciple, which would imply that the first guy was potentially a disciple, that's just kind of a little side point for us. Regardless, what we need to see is that the scribe sees himself first and foremost as Jesus' peer. In essence, what the scribe does is he comes to Jesus and he's like, hey, Jesus, teacher, I will, I'll follow you wherever. Like, I am dedicated. I am committed. And, and there, there seems to be, at least some commentators indicate like an air of arrogance about him because he, he understands he and Jesus to be on the same level. And so he's referencing Jesus as just another teacher like himself. And in essence, what he's saying is like, hey, Jesus, if I'm, if I'm with you, if I'm on your team, what you need to understand is that your team's complete. Like, you should be happy to have me with you, <laughs> Like, we will, we will we'll kill this thing. We'll, we'll teach the gospel of the kingdom. We'll take out the Romans. It'll be good days. Right? And so there's this, this boldness, this brashness that he comes in with as what he perceives to be as himself another skilled teacher, right? How nice that he would offer himself to Jesus in such a way. But Jesus' response to this disciple is simply that discipleship isn't what he thinks it is. Right? Like, I think he has this idea that something is going to be established that's going to create more comfort for himself and for his people. And so Jesus' response is, no, <laughs> foxes have holes, birds of there have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head which isn't necessarily a reference to Jesus being homeless. We know that Jesus made his home in Capernaum, like he had somewhere to lay his head. But it's getting at the heart of the idea that Jesus has uh, bigger issues to deal with than what this scribe perceives. And so there's this misunderstanding in his mind of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Then we have the second disciple. And the second disciple is a lot less confident. 
He seems even a little bit timid. But the tricky thing with this one is that his timidity is disguised in the desire to do that which is honorable. So look at the text again. Uh, Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So he wants to go and bury his father. Apparently his father has died. And he wants to do that which is completely honorable and expected. And, And this is what's interesting is no one would have objected to this. Actually, what Jesus says here is really offensive. Because the expectation of the culture wouldn't have had to have even been asked. The complete expectation would have been, yeah, go, go take care of your father. Honor this person. Respect this person in their death by burying them and giving them a good funeral. And yet Jesus responds differently. Jesus says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead, right? And so what we see in this disciple, and we'll talk a bit more about that in just a sec, but what we see in this disciple is that though he, he wants to follow Jesus, he also recognizes that he has other priorities in life, and so he's waffling a little bit. And so both illustrate a lack of true understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, or at least in the way that Jesus is communicating it. So what is Jesus doing? Well, I think what we need to see is that he's continuing to go to the outsiders. I think that's kind of the big idea of of this portion of text, verse 18 through 22. I think it's a continuation of, of this picture of him going to those who you would not expect and building his team, so to speak, with members who we wouldn't automatically expect. Because what we see here is is that, um, I don't know, think back to the days when you were in school and you had to be picked on teams, right? Some, that was a nightmare. Some, it was great. Or if you were picking the team, right, who would you pick? Unless you had a real tender and compassionate heart, you probably were going to pick the person that was going to help you win. I mean, that's exactly how I functioned. (laughs) That's how I still want to function, especially if it's a sport. Like, I want to win. So I'm going to pick who fits best on the team to accomplish that purpose. And you would expect the same, because that's how we function. But Jesus repeatedly goes to the outsiders. Jesus repeatedly challenges the societal norms and winds up picking those who are least expected to be picked. Now, I think what's important for us in this is to to understand ourselves not as the scribe, the expert in the law, but more as the waffling disciple. And what we have to see in this is that Jesus' clear invitation is what? He says, follow me, follow me. And so with the first disciple, the scribe, Jesus shows us this. He shows us that he isn't desperate for the elites. And I think this is important for us because how often do we kind of maybe get discouraged feeling like we don't know enough? 
I've heard this numerous times in the last couple of weeks. It's easy to get discouraged feeling that we don't know enough, that we're, not, that we're somehow not cutting it as followers of Jesus. I like how Bruner puts this, actually. He says, quote, Jesus is not desperate for humanly impressive disciples. To our surprise, he puts this man under severe scrutiny. The church can learn from this. Jesus wants disciples. That is clear from the whole gospel, but he does not want them at any cost. Which can be initially an abrasive feeling, but Jesus doesn't just invite anyone and everyone onto his team, so to speak. And so I think we need to be careful about bringing ourselves to believe that we're invaluable to Jesus because of how we perceive our abilities, right? Like, let's, let's be careful to not put ourselves in the place of being like, man, Jesus, I know that you're, you're just probably really glad I'm on your team. Like, you couldn't do this without me. <laughs> and, we, and we laugh, but man, it's so easy to get down that road, It's so easy to have that sort of self-perception. And then with with the second man, Jesus surprisingly, he just doubles down. Instead of scolding or rebuking, and, 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 and kind of seeing this waffly disciple as worthless, and then just moving on to pick the guy who's seemingly committed, Jesus says, no, you follow me. In his response to this disciple, what Jesus does is he shows us that discipleship is, um, it's not just a one-time deal, but it's a totality of, of life reality that we're constantly being called back into. Okay? And, and this is what I want us to understand, because far too often we kind of, we have this perception that to be a follower of Jesus is this one-time decision that I made at some point in time in my life, and then we just kind of stick Jesus to the side and push him off as a weekend hobby. Jesus is not a weekend hobby. Right? Or, or even at that, we're coming up on, on like Christmas. Jesus is not a Christmas hobby. Jesus did not come to just make us feel good during December. He's Lord. And he demonstrates that reality in the way that he speaks to these men and calls them to follow him. And so just I want us to ask this question. Does Jesus have complete authority over your life? Make that assessment. Because at this stage for these disciples... And again, we don't, we don't need to pick on them too harshly. This is a process that we're going to see worked out throughout the Gospel of Matthew. But at this point, they're not so sure about Jesus having authority over their lives. I mean, they've, they've, seen, they've heard some teaching, you know, pretty good Jesus teaching. They've seen some miracles, leper cleansed, uh, centurion's son healed, You know, they've seen some stuff. But at this point, there's still this question, it seems, in regards to whether or not Jesus should have authority over their lives. And so we need to ask that question ourselves. 
And we need to see that Jesus is less concerned about our religious pedigree and abilities, so to speak, and he's far more concerned about our allegiance to him in the entirety of our lives. As Bruner puts it succinctly, absolutely nothing may take priority over Jesus' call to discipleship. And so discipleship to Jesus is all-encompassing. And he continually calls us back into this reality. It's never to be left behind for us. Let's move on. Number two, Jesus has authority over chaos. Uh, so, Brunner calls these two miracles the chaos miracles, because in, in both of them, we see Jesus entering into scenes of, of chaos and calming the storms, so to speak. Uh, and I, man, it took forever to, for me to figure out how to, to work through these texts, and I, and I, still, don't, I still don't know if it makes sense in my mind, <laughs> So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to combine the two, right? Uh, I think sometimes our, our paragraph headings aren't necessarily overly helpful. I, see, I think we see a consistent theme here from Jesus' calming of the storm to Jesus' calming of the demon-possessed men. Right? So let's just read it again and, and listen and watch what Jesus does. So when he got into the boat, he finally, he finally gets to be able to get into the boat. His disciples followed him because that's what disciples do, right? So his disciples follow him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Remember, uh, when it's referenced as sea, it's the Sea of Galilee, it's, a, it's just a really big lake. It's not the ocean, really huge lake. And they went and woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, Oh, you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? When he came to the other side, the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met, met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So let's just deal with these now. In the first, in the first scene, verses 23 through 27, Jesus, of course, gets onto the boat with his disciples, uh, and you just, you just have to love this, that Jesus is tired. Like the very first thing that Jesus seems to do because there's no, there's no interaction, there's no communication. The very first thing he seems to do is, like, I'm going to go sleep now. Uh, he's been working hard, doing ministry, healing, 
casting out demons, teaching, all of that stuff. It's pretty exhausting. And so Jesus goes down and goes to sleep. And as, as they're going across the lake, uh, storms were known to come on the Sea of Galilee just kind of suddenly, instantly, and one does. And the disciples are just terrified, right? Uh, to the point that they actually have a right response to Jesus, right? Notice that their, their response is, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Like, they, they very clearly communicate the reality of human existence apart from Jesus, like, like this, this ought to be our cry. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. Uh, and I, you know, not to like over-spiritualize or cliche it, right? But like in the midst of and around the storms of life, like this is the reality. Our greatest, deepest need is Jesus to save us. Right? For we are perishing. Right? And then they wake him up. Yeah, wake him up. Tell him what's going on. And Jesus just seems to remain perfectly calm. He doesn't, he doesn't panic, right? uh, but what he does do is interesting. He says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Remember, this was one of Jesus' nicknames for his disciples. Uh, literally, it's just little faiths. Right? What, are you, what are you doing, little faiths? <laughs> Which I don't, I don't know if that's endearing or not. <laughs> I guess we can figure out how to take that. Bruner actually just goes out and says that they were cowards, and I, I, don't, I don't know if that's what Jesus is getting at. I don't know if he's like, hey, why are you guys being cowards? Stop. Regardless, it's clear that they still don't understand how to understand Jesus. Like, like up to this point, they've, they've seen things and they've heard things, but they're still not quite sure where to categorize him. Right? And the other thing that's interesting about this is I think the tendency is... Uh, for us to just come out and say, well, obviously this text is just communicating to us that Jesus is God, that he's, he's divine, which it might be. I, I think that's part of it, but I don't want us to be too quick to like cut that path. Because even notice the response of the disciples. They don't, they don't have a category at this point for the second person of the Godhead. So they're not sure where to place Jesus. And their response is what, the ESV says, what sort of man is this? What kind of man is this? Uh, it adds the word man. And so literally the disciples are like, what is this? It's almost kind of like what sort of figure, what sort of creation is this that is before us that has the authority to just get up and with a word tell the the lake, to be calm, and it happens. I mean, that would be a little perplexing, right? And, and rightfully so. That's the, that's the first interaction. Jesus calms the chaos there with the disciples in the boat. In the second one, we see Jesus casting out demons. Now, talk about a lot of directions we could have gone with that, right? Uh, and I think... Well, let's start with this. How many of you, when you see demonic interactions in the New Testament, you're like, hmm, what should we do with this? No? You got it? All right. I mean, you can be more responsive, yes? It's a little perplexing. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to answer less questions than you would probably like on that this morning. Uh, but what we're going to see this 
as a consistent theme, again, throughout the Gospel of Matthew. So at some point in the future, we'll probably slow down a bit and talk a bit more about uh, what we see as demonic activity in the Gospel of Matthew in particular. But for today, uh, we just need to see this, okay? Jesus is going to the country of the Gatherings. It was a, a Gentile region, which is why there are pigs there. That's why there's pig farmers there. It's a Gentile region. You wouldn't have found this in a Jewish region because Jews didn't eat pigs. They didn't like pigs. I actually had to butcher a pig recently. It went really bad. I was like, I get it. I understand. I understand the adverse nature of the pigs. At any rate, you have these demon-possessed men. They're coming out of the tombs. They're so fierce that no one could pass that way. And so there's just an avoidance. And then the demons... This is interesting. Jesus, notice, he never interacts with the men specifically. The entire interaction here is with Jesus and the demons. Now, um, Matthew doesn't give us as many details here as Mark does. And it's not our job to harmonize the Gospels. Just Like if ever you're like, oh, a harmony of the Gospels, that's so nice. Don't do that. We're not supposed to harmonize them. They're, they're, they're specific stories to specific people told in specific ways for specific purposes. And so Matthew doesn't want us to see all of the details, uh, but we know that this is, uh, there's a legion of demons, and we know that there's thousands of pigs, roughly 2,000, that eventually wind up jumping off of a cliff and into the, the lake, right? which if you're like, should I laugh? Yeah, maybe a little bit, <laughs> There's just something intriguing about the story. Right? And so Jesus allows the demons. He, I mean, it's interesting to note that they don't have authority in and of themselves to do anything. Uh, at the same time, it's interesting to note that Jesus, Jesus is willing to allow them to ask. Like, hey, if you're going to do something, like, can you throw us into the pigs? Why? No idea. Right? And Jesus is like, gladly. Jesus didn't like bacon. So, throws them into the pigs. And what we see is that the men are calmed. Actually, we don't even get that specifically from this interaction. All we see is that they jump over the cliff. And then what we see then is the response of the town there in, in Gerasene or in the, the town of the Gadarenes. It says uh, that the men... The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything to the town, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And then the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So here's what I think we're supposed to see in this. This is at least what I'm seeing in it this week. First is this. Jesus is Lord over the chaos. I think in particular, we're supposed to remember Genesis 1.1. Like we're supposed to remember the beginning of the story where it was chaos. And then how did the chaos stop being chaos? God spoke. God spoke things into existence and the chaos calmed. And so here is, here is the reality. We are indeed to see Jesus as more than man. Yes, he's man. He's sleeping in a boat. Okay? That's, what, that's what people do. They sleep. Right? But Jesus is also Lord. And, and his authority exists 
in the ability to just speak. And so when Jesus speaks, chaos is calmed. And so we see Jesus calm the storm with the disciples, and we see Jesus calm the lives of the demon-possessed men. He's Lord over the chaos. But also, I think we're to see the two entirely different responses. I think, I think we're supposed to see the response of the disciples. What is this? Who is this? What is going on in front of us? What are we seeing? And I think we're supposed to understand that this perplexed response makes sense. Is Jesus man or is Jesus God? Yes. And I, and I don't think that we're supposed to be able to have like a clear ability to categorize that. But what we are to see is that Jesus is with his disciples in the midst of whatever chaos exists in our lives. Like what we are supposed to see is that to be a follower of Jesus doesn't automatically equate to ease and comfort. Like the first real experience that the disciples have with Jesus is one in which we see them afraid and cowardly. But in the midst of it, they experience Jesus as the calm in the storm. Right? And then the second response we're supposed to see is the get out of here response. Right? And I think this response is in light of the fact that Jesus' uh, call to discipleship is disruptive to our lives. Right? Like Jesus is more than willing to disrupt every detail of our lives, that we would follow him. Uh, and notice, I think specifically the reason why they wanted him out of there is because he ruined their whole economy. Like, uh, I think 2,000 pigs probably would have been expensive. Like, there's something going on there. So Jesus kind of throws their entire income off of a cliff, and they're like, will you please leave, good sir? <laughs> but this is, this, is, this is the nature of discipleship. Jesus is the calmer of the storms, but he's also the disruptor of our lives. And so, again, it just it causes us to have to stop and question, like, what, what are we doing? Again, Jesus isn't just a Sunday hobby. Glad you're here. But this is meant to carry over into everything. This is meant to affect the way that you go out to lunch, the way that you spend the rest of your day, the way that you treat your spouse, the way that you treat your kids, the way that you do your work, the way that you go about the whole of your life. Jesus is Lord over all of it. That's what we're beginning to see. And so what, we, what, we, what I want to conclude with is this, is that Jesus is worthy of our allegiance. And the question is, is will we be resilient disciples? And, and I want to build off of, of something in uh, John Mark Comer's recent book, Live No Lies. Uh, he, he says this, he says, quote, do I have this? I think I have this. I do. While 49% of millennials and 65% of American adults as a whole still identify as Christian, 
in national surveys, though we're hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging millions of young people each year, a recent in-depth analysis by the Barna Group, a Christian think tank, put the number of young adults who are resilient disciples at 10%. At 10%. Now, for some of you, that's a shock. For some of you, are like, wow, I can't believe it's that high. Because here's, here's and, and if you want to know what, what a resilient disciple is, the, the way that they define it is this, is it's um, a resilient disciple is someone who has made a commitment to Jesus, who they believe was crucified and raised to conquer sin and death. They are involved in a faith community beyond attendance at worship services and strongly affirm that the Bible is inspired by God and contains truth about the world. So there's, a, there's in essence, there's a, a sort of depth of belief that these resilient disciples have. Okay? I think what Jesus is just beginning to set up for us is this reality that to be one of his disciples is not easy. Um, we're not called into an easy believism where we get to maintain all of our comforts and ideals while Jesus just remains on the sideline. The call to discipleship is a complete, um, turning away from our lives and aligning with the ways of Jesus. Right? And, and that works itself out in our daily lives. Right? I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, that we're all necessarily going to have to like go sell everything and give up homes and whatever. Maybe that's the case, I don't know. But it's, it's this, like, it, do you see Jesus as Lord of your singleness? Do you see Jesus as Lord of your marriage? Do you see Jesus as, as Lord of your job? Right. How often do we do we? see Jesus as, as being with us in these spaces. So I think far too often we think we're in authority over those spaces. And yet Jesus declares that he's in authority over all of it. Furthermore, what we'll continue to see throughout the gospel is that the requirement of disciples is to persevere. Because more and more what, what we're going to discover is that, maybe not that we're going to discover, that we are discovering, like, it's not cool to follow Jesus. Actually, more and more, if we, if we really align with Jesus' teachings, his, his, his morals, his sexual ethic, uh, so on and so forth, we'll find that we're just going to be quickly rejected. And so the question is, are we going to persevere in and through that? And, and the reason that we do, the reason that we ought to, is because who else can, with a word, calm seas? Who else, with a word, can cast out demons? It's Jesus. Like, Jesus is worthy of our allegiance to him. Will we follow? Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, help us to see that you are the king who we are to bow our knees to. To, to see that you are worthy of the entirety of our lives. That you are not just a weekend hobby, that you are your savior and you are king. And you call us to, to live in a way that is entirely different and other than the world around us. And so I pray that, that you would shape us into disciples who submit to your authority, that we would look at your teachings, that we would hear them and obey them. Lord Jesus, that you, yeah, that you would just make clear that you are Lord and King to us. And so we, we worship you. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen.